Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. It's a fine line making your anti-hero likeable and relatable while he's busy being deplorable. It's a struggle all too familiar for today's guest, Jack Heath. With more than 20 novels on shelves to date, Jack has recently taken a bite out of the adult market with his new bestseller, Hangman, the story of a cannibal profiler working with the FBI. And yes, that's just the first of many bad puns you'll hear during our conversation. Having established his career at age 19, writing action-adventure novels for kids, it's fair to say this is an entirely new recipe of success for Jack and his work. See, I told you there'd be puns. Hello, Jack. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Jack, I'm always fascinated by where an author starts with their research. So explain to me, where do you go to find out how to eat a human foot? <laughs> um, I thought we'd start with the main course as opposed oh, to any warm-up here. Well, yeah, definitely. I I was thinking the other day about six-word stories. You know, there's that famous Ernest Hemingway one that may or may not be apocryphal, baby's shoes never worn, that, that story. And when I was reading through the edit of Hangman, I saw the line of not much meat on a foot. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good six-word story as far as they go. Um, so I visited some very scary websites, some of which may or may not have been satirical. Um, yeah, some of which definitely were. <laughs> there, there was a website called manbeef.com that was claiming to sell human meat, but it was a hoax website from, from way back. Uh, um, I, I would hope there'd been a knock on your door by the police <laughs> if it wasn't. I, I don't travel much anymore because I am worried about getting sort of pulled up at security and looking at having someone print at, with a printout of my search history and saying, why on earth would you need to know all these things? But, Ultimately, I figured most of my readers have probably never eaten a person. So I figured I could just imagine as vividly as I could what it would be like and then write it down and, and hope that it comes across as authentic. And the thing is, once you tell people that you're writing a book about, um, a book about cannibalism, people just start emailing you stuff. <laughs> the number of horrifying things I've found in my inbox, and some things come up more than once. There's a uh, there's a beach somewhere in Canada where human feet keep washing up on yes. the shore, and the number of people who've emailed me that story, it just I went, oh, so it must be Monday. There's a there's the human <laughs> foot beach in my inbox again. So yeah, if you write some scary things, the scary people find you, but. <laughs> I guess that's okay. Them's the brakes, as they say. I'm interested in the driving forces for the creation of Timothy Blake, your your character in Hangman, yeah. who is essentially at one point even refers to himself as a cannibal detective. Now, he's not. He, he just happens to be someone who's essentially a profiler with a terrible addiction to human flesh. Yes. yes. So, so what was the driving force there? Uh, there were a few different ones. Firstly, it, it was kind of a challenge to myself in a few different directions. I have not at all a strong stomach. Um, I'm someone who has been known to, uh, well, I faint at the sight of blood, not always, but often. Um, I sometimes even faint at the thought of blood, which is a, a bit of a worry. I would be no use whatsoever in an emergency situation. And that means that um, this book had kind of a, 
face your fears type thing. I thought, okay, what's the most gruesome, horrible, awful thing I can possibly think of? And Akira Kurosawa once said the role of the artist is not to look away. I had this attitude that I wanted to, um, I wanted to describe this character doing the things that, that frighten me and scare me most, um, in an effort to sort of make myself braver, if, if that makes any sense. But, I also really liked um, 24 back when that was on. This tells you how long this book has been in the works. I, I was watching series two of 24 and there was this great moment where Jack Bauer, uh, he, he needs to quickly establish a cover or some authenticity with a gang of bad guys so as they'll tell him where the bomb is hidden. And so what he does is he finds an FBI witness who's going to testify against them, who has been promised um, immunity from from a pedophilia charge and he murders that witness and cuts off their head with a hacksaw and then brings it to the terrorist gang and says well obviously I'm not a cop because here's the severed head of the guy who was going to put you all in jail now tell me where the bomb is and I remember uh in that moment where you think oh no way he's not going to do that oh he did there's that feeling of oh no way that I wanted to capture for kind of an entire book mm. that, that and and I guess also all bets are off then for the hero yeah. Because he's taking you to a level of breaking point almost as an audience, which is that he's asking you, to, you've got to stay with me, but I'm going to test your levels of loyalty here with what can I do that is so poor or, or, or revolting or inappropriate or illegal that you stay with me. That's right. It was not only a challenge to my own constitution in terms of being weak stomached, but it, it was a sort of interesting creative writing challenge for me. I went, okay, how, how many techniques do I know in order to make a character forgivable or or to to get the reader on their side so on the one hand I wanted to make him as repulsive as I possibly could on the other hand I wanted to use every trick in the book so to speak to um to get the reader to forgive him so things like um he does terrible things but he feels guilt about the terrible things he does uh the terrible things he does are largely to bad people um the uh he he has a, a sense of, of a loss of, of control that it's sort of a compulsive thing. So he's Timothy Blake, he's compared to Dexter a lot, I think, but he's not actually a psychopath. He's almost the opposite. I'm interested in the ethics, though, of eating bad people. And I, I, I know that you yourself were very fascinated by the ethical decision of does capital punishment make a difference? Yeah. Capital punishment is something that's fascinated me for a long time. Um, I think, you know, I saw the Green Mile when I was a kid or something. And then uh, later, Chappelle Corby was arrested. And of course, as we now know, she was not executed, but the, the newspapers were making out that she was going to be killed. And I became fascinated by this idea of state sanctioned death, just because it was another thing that frightened me. And um I was interested in the idea of doing evil things for good reasons. So, okay, the, the idea is that if we execute criminals, then that will uh, make other people less likely to commit violent crimes and it will save lives in the long run. And it becomes kind of this version of the, the trolley problem, you know, killing one person to save five and, and things like that. So I was interested in stretching that idea to its breaking point where I go, okay, um, so Timothy Blake, 
he kills people. Uh, well, he, he eats people, which is a repulsive thing to do, but he also saves lives. So he is a bad person and the net results of all his activities are good. So is it possible for there to be an immoral act that has no negative consequences? He's operating on a ratio of one to one. He saves a life and he's rewarded with a life, isn't he? Yes, although in this instance, so the, the people that he eats are all death row inmates, so they would be dead either way. So he yes, he gets a body for every life he saves, but there's no, there's no net cost, um, which is essentially why the FBI, the incredibly corrupt and cash-strapped FBI, is willing to, to make this deal with him. I, when I started writing the book, I hadn't been to Texas yet, so I had this very cartoonish version of um, America and Texas in particular as being kind of the Wild West, <laughs> where basically it went, okay, so the government is underfunded because no one is willing to pay taxes, so the FBI has to do whatever it takes to try to get crimes solved up to and including providing death row cadavers to um to a dangerous lunatic did you go spend any time in a morgue though um that, yes but that was in canberra not in uh not in texas yeah and it was sort of a date well hang was, on what hang on what <laughs> let's put this in perspective it was a date there was this girl i was interested in and she was studying forensic science and she just asked me if i wanted to go to the morgue with her on the weekend because it was the open day and i said yeah sure <laughs> That'll be fun. So I saw a foot in a jar <laughs> and observed that there was not much meat on it. And I saw a, a brain that was um, that where you could see the line in it that had been carved out by the bullet that went through it and things like that. That was a, an experience that'll. I, I'd like to say that it would haunt me, but but I think deep down writers are kind of a bit sociopathic. There's that. There's that surface level of, oh, that's horrible. And then there's a deeper level of, oh, I could use that. That's like a really good image. <laughs> so writing becomes a, a lens through which you see the world that sometimes means you learn stuff, but it also takes moments where maybe you should be a bit more horrified than you are and makes them fun. You know, I find I have to suppress a, a grin when someone's telling me a horrible story. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I'm surprised you actually made it through the morgue, given your squeamishness. And I, I think you've underplayed it here because I need to ask you about Paul Cleave's story, The Cleaner. <laughs> the cleaner. Can you explain to me what happened when you discovered Paul's book and commenced reading? I can, yes. Um, so The Cleaner by Paul Cleave was one of the first books I'd ever read where the main character was a serial killer, um, which is done to death now, arguably, but, but I'd never come across it before, and this was quite a long time ago. And I was reading this one particular scene and I was on an aeroplane when I was reading it and the scene was so confronting so gruesome that I fainted and then when I um when I woke up I felt like I'd been glued to the chair I was just really dizzy and confused and at first didn't even remember who I was much less where I was and then I remembered that I'd been reading this book and then I couldn't get the scene out of my head. It just kept going through and round and round and round and round. And the more I tried not to picture the action, the the more it, it, it kept popping up. And then eventually I, I grabbed a vomit bag and threw up into oh it gosh. and then got the shake so much that I dropped the bag and completely ruined the copy of The Cleaner by Paul Cleave <laughs> that I've been reading on the plane. The irony of it being called The Cleaner as well. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That didn't strike me at the time, but it does now. And I later received a copy of it 
um, in in the mail um, from the author. He'd signed the inscription and thanked me for the wonderful story that he'd been dining out on about what his book had done to me. And um, <laughs> there was uh, an unused aeroplane vomit bag tucked in at the page with the disgusting scene. So on the one hand, that was a very unpleasant experience for me. But on the other hand, I had so much respect for that author and that book because the idea, as, as I'm often telling my my writing students, I say, look, a book is just ink blots and wood pulp that shouldn't be able to interfere with your digestive system. You're not actually eating it, but words have power. And so that was in part the genesis of Hangman. It was me going, okay, how, how much can I push the reader's emotional buttons and how uncomfortable can I make them? Mm. It, it, I mean, you do give, it seems to be designed to give a very visceral, get a, sorry, generate a very visceral response from people as they read it. And I'm intrigued by the fact that you even say in the back of your book, you spoke to other authors, other crime writers about how to dish up a repulsive character in an appealing way. So yeah. what is the line, especially with a cannibal? How do you get to that point where you might reach a, a moment in the book where you go, actually, I have to pull it back because I'm about to lose my audience. How do you keep them with you for a character of this nature? Um, I think part of it is about emotional contrast. Like some of the earlier drafts didn't work, not because they were gruesome. They were gruesome, but they were monotonously gruesome. So sort of everything he did was repulsive but i think when i started adding you know little wry jokes in his inner monologue so making some scenes funny and making other scenes sad uh so there, there's moments of the fact that he has such a kind of devastated life devastated in so many different ways it, it becomes about kind of pushing the reader's pity buttons at least once for every time you push their disgust buttons, if that makes any sense. Yes, yeah. And also I think readers are much more forgiving to a character if they have a skill, if if they sort of benefit society in, in some way. So um, early on, I, I tried, early on in the drafting process, I mean, I tried to have Timothy Blake do some selfless things to benefit some other people and that kind of worked, but I ended up toning that back and instead just having him be so incredibly good at his consultancy job that people are inclined to say, oh, well, he's a terrible... It's the sort of thing you see in Hollywood a lot now, actually. Like, oh, he's a terrible person, but he's such a great artist <laughs> or something like that. So we're much more forgiving of of someone who is somehow useful to society, particularly if they have a unique skill that it would be a shame to lose. Does it help, though, that he has been... He's specifically good at tracking and finding lost or stolen children. Yes. Does that help? Was that a switch that you need to press as well? I think so. I I think I, I mentioned before that he um, we forgive him for his terrible acts because they're mostly done to terrible people. He's eating the, uh, the, the remains of, of death row inmates who have been executed for horrible crimes. But also the people that he saves are the most innocent of the most innocent. And it's not just that he's... Uh, rescuing children he's a sort of missing persons specialist but um we soon find out in the book um that the main case that he's working on 
the child that he's rescuing is not only under the threat of the person who kidnapped them, but has also had a pretty horrible home life in his own way and has been messed up too. So the fact that I was leaning, I guess, on the victimhood of, of the person that he's, he's rescuing, not just making them innocent because they're a child, but making them the innocent victim of a whole bunch of different things, which means that the reader really wants someone to save Cameron Hall and we're not especially fussy about who it is. <laughs> so you don't look a you don't look a gift cannibal in the mouth or something like that. <laughs> a couple of years ago you had a moment to sit and have lunch with Brett Easton Ellis, the extremely yes. successful author of American Psycho. Mm. Someone who perhaps would know better than any other how to create a difficult character that keeps you compelled but also appalls you throughout the book. What opportunity did you have to learn from him? What did you get from that conversation? Um, I, I met him a couple of times over the course of the Byron Bay Writers' Festival a few years ago, and that was wonderful because his novel Lunar Park was actually one of my favourites of all time. It's sort of, it, it starts out like an autobiography and ends up more like a sort of Stephen King haunted house type novel. So it's a novel in which Brad Easton Ellis himself is the main character. And I really loved that book. And then later I had the opportunity to read American Psycho and I liked that. So when I had the opportunity to meet him, I, um, I heard him say possibly to someone else, I kind of barged in on the conversation, as I'm notorious for doing. He, he said that he mostly writes screenplays, but that he writes a novel whenever he feels like he has a problem to solve. And I couldn't help but ask him, so when you wrote American Psycho, what on earth was on your mind that, that led you to, to want to write this book? And he said he was, he'd just been thinking about his father a lot. He, he didn't uh, elaborate much, but, uh, only to hint that sort of uh, Patrick Bateman, I think, is the main character of yes, American yes, Psycho, yes. was um, uh, was based on on his father and the way his father saw the world as as um, so not just a sort of materialism that extends over to humanity and the idea that people are objects to be sort of consumed and and used and things like that. But one of the things that I really liked about um, meeting him was the fact that he was so extraordinarily well read and, and culturally um, he, he was across all sorts of pop media, but he hated everything. <laughs> I, I couldn't name a single movie that I liked or book that I liked or anything that he, I, I would just rattle off long lists of my favorite movies and, in, and he'd tell me exactly what was wrong with each one. Uh, eventually I said, what about American Psycho, uh, the movie? And he said, oh, that one was okay. That was the nicest thing he said about any anything that I loved. And so part of what I got out of that conversation was um, just the the fact that I think it's really important for a writer to um, a read extremely diversely and and read with a critical eye, so to to look for things that you might change if you had been the author of this other thing. But also, I was kind of I found him lovely company, but I also found myself not wanting to turn into him. I I went okay. I don't want to be someone who hates everything. I want to be someone who goes through the world looking for things to like in other people's work, um, which is why I guess Hangman or, or Timothy Blake rather is this kind of mashup of Dexter and Jack Bauer and Jack Reacher and and a bunch of the other things that I enjoy, rather than just a reaction against the things that I don't like. 
Which is quite interesting for you because you, your very first book back when you were published at about 17, 18 yeah. was a direct reaction to what you've been forced to learn at school. Yes, that's right. Romeo and, and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even Hangman, my understanding is though that that was a reaction to the way serial killers were being written about at the time. That's and, true. You know, when you wrote it, when you started writing about eight years ago, isn't that correct? Yeah, I um, I certainly found that. So I started writing Hangman because of a couple of main characters, a serial killer books that I loved, which included um, The Cleaner and Joyce Carol Oates's book Zombie, which was fantastic. Um, but the more of them I read, actually, the serial killers in as villains in other people's work, eventually. I think I just realized that the most interesting thing about a murderer is why. And with a serial killer, there is no why. They they just do it. And I get why that is scary. So crime readers like serial killers because they're frightening because they could target you for absolutely no reason. And uh, But I actually wanted to go exactly the opposite route and say, okay, let's delve really right deep down into why. Because um, having written a whole heap of children's books in my life, so I've, out of my 21, 22 books, um, only one is for adults and the others are all for children. There's enormous pressure on children's books to be morally prescriptive. You need to, the, the hero needs to be entirely good or if they have flaws, they learn from them. And the villains can be either cartoonishly evil or they can be evil and then learn their lesson. There, there's not much nuance there. But I actually think everyone exists on a spectrum of kind of good and evil or maybe there are no good or evil people. There are only good and evil acts. And I was interested in being able to write a character where I go, okay, he's a monster, but he's still a human being. And to force the reader to confront that idea that like even terrible people have feelings. <laughs> uh, I, I've never tried to articulate this out loud before, so I don't know if it makes sense, but certainly I wanted, um, I wanted to sort of rock the moral foundations that, um, that people and readers stand on, which is why it's not for children, because for children, I guess those moral foundations are still being formed. I still learned a lot of what I feel like I know about honesty and courage and and things I learned from books and from the heroes that I admired. So um, I think much more than all the um, the sex and violence and things, what really makes Han Hangman inappropriate for kids is, is exactly that, the fact that um, depiction is not necessarily endorsement and adults get that and kids don't always. And we should probably say if anyone's sort of a bit worried about the book, it actually isn't particularly gory. It's the ideas and the concepts behind it. There's only a few real moments of, of true violence. A lot more of it is in, in, inferred. Yeah. It's after the fact, really. Yeah, that's right. A lot of it happens off camera. And that was another thing that worked quite well um, in the final draft and not at all in, in the first because I'd written the early drafts as kind of a challenge to myself as, you know, how repulsive can I make this? So every mouthful is described in lurid detail. Whereas um, in, in the final draft, I was confident enough, I guess, to just have it be implied and imper inferred and to make it more frightening by keeping it off camera and to have a gradual crescendo that begins with unease and ends with the one truly gory scene in the book. So, so it has not exactly an arc, but certainly, um, certainly it has shape. It's not just horror after horror after horror, um, which American Psycho kind of is. With yes. I say with great respect to the book, but um, 
but it becomes numbingly horrifying, which perhaps is the point. Which, which I, seems very much to be the point. Yeah, yeah it's almost exactly. like if you can last on this and if you're still reading, we'll get ready for the next one. And yeah. it's almost daring you to put the book down as it goes along. Whereas Hangman is actually more, it's, it's a thrill ride as a, as a crime thrill. I, I was going to say it's pushing a thriller, you, yeah. It's pushing you forwards to that conclusion because you want to see just how far this is all going to go. Yeah, I one of the other things that I wanted to do with it was I, I feel like a lot of crime novels that I had read at that time, this may not be true anymore, but either you had sort of a really interesting, scary character study, so that includes the American psychos and zombies and stuff, or you had a really fast-paced, exciting plot with a clever mystery, but not both. There weren't a lot of people. It, it, was, all, it was like the authors didn't trust the readers to get on board with um, the idea that that they didn't trust themselves to get the readers to care about a, a scary character enough to want to watch him or her solve that mystery, if that makes any sense. Well, there's very limited um, calls, sorry, limited characters that you could immediately call to mind. So obviously Hannibal Lecter and Dexter, the two that people would naturally go to. Yeah. So it must be, it must be a difficult, uh, I suppose what I'm looking for, it must be difficult to create that character believably without losing your audience, which is what we've talked about at the very beginning. How did that change through eight years of writing? Because this is about eight years old, this book, isn't it? I started writing the first draft in 2008, um, January 2008, and it was published in January 2018. So, um, so yeah, 10 years of work, really. And, and it changed quite a lot. Um, so some of, some of it was stuff, just lingo stuff. Originally, I was a big fan of Cormac McCarthy. And so it was partly him that had made me enamored with the American South. Um, so it was written in a very sort of lingo heavy, um, not quite phonetic way, but you know, there are a lot of dropped G's and not just in the dialogue. Um, it had almost, you know, a Holden Caulfield type vibe uh and then that didn't work at all <laughs> no one liked it everyone hated it uh the book was rejected by a lot of publishers for, before it eventually got got published and that was one of the things but also an early draft of it um was rejected because the main character just seemed kind of too too repulsive too evil readers would never get on board so i tried to make him more likable and then another publisher rejected it because they went you know he's too He's too likable because he um, now it's like you're saying that he's not that bad when he clearly is. And that makes the book not just the character repulsive, but the book repulsive because it seems to be implicitly endorsing his behavior. So there was a lot of toing and froing on that. Um, in an original draft, he was personally the one executing the inmates as well as eating them. <laughs> um, and so that had to go because that, that just pushed him too far over to, into the vein of, I, I definitely wanted to make it that it wasn't about the killing. It was about the eating. The eating is, is taboo. Um, but the killing is actually evil, if that makes any sense. Yes. Um, personally, I want to go on the record and, and say, uh, if, if someone wanted to eat me after I died, I would have no objection to that. I don't actually think any harm is done. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and there the tombstone is written. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jack Heath, here lies, he wouldn't have minded. <laughs> Here's his bones or what's left of them or something like that. But also I want to say that a lot of the, the things that people have told me that they really like about the book came about in just those last couple of drafts that I'd written in just those last couple of years. Things like the riddles at the beginning of every chapter. That was kind of a last minute 
Um, well, actually, I was going to ask you that because so, there seems to be there are connections to yourself or seem to be connections to who you are as well, which is the, the puzzle solving and the nature of the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, um, I had a bit of a background in, in magic. Um, so it, it was a hobby that became kind of an obsession. And uh, when I learned a particular magic trick that you could do with a Rubik's Cube in order to uh, learn how to do that. So the problem was you use a real Rubik's Cube to do the trick and if you stuff it up, as you will, the first couple of times you attempt the trick, you then have a jumbled Rubik's Cube that you have to solve. So I had to learn to solve Rubik's Cubes in order to get good at this trick. And basically that meant that when I decided to make um, Timothy Blake uh, a person who kind of solves riddles and puddle, puzzles as a kind of side hustle. So that's his, his sort of, he has many undesirable jobs, but that's kind of his most palatable profession. Uh, solving Rubik's Cubes was just kind of a natural fit because I knew how it worked already. So I was just looking for the kinds of problems that I knew enough about to write about in a convincing way. Yeah, so you seem to have a fondness for riddles in the sense that, um, or at least for clues, when we look back at your, your other writing, which is the, the teen mm. and mid-range, um, well, it's not called middle age. Or uh, mid-range. Middle grade. Middle often. grade um, yeah. writing. Things like the minutes to danger books, so the 300 minutes, 400 minutes, yeah. 500 minutes, there are clues put through each of these stories that sort of show that there are, they are connected. There are elements there that if you're reading carefully enough, you'll pick up, or certainly in the 500 minutes to danger. And there are also, of course, the nature of clues to, to a certain extent in the Countdown to Danger series, which are the choose-your-own-ending types of books yes. because you have to work out from a puzzle perspective whether you're going to turn left, whether you're going to turn right, whether you're going to go to page 26, as I had to three times, three <laughs> times I had to return to page 26 because I kept dying. Oh, dear. Yeah, each book has about 30 endings and in 20 of them you die a horrible <laughs> death. So the odds are stacked against you from the beginning. Um, although, again, the Choose Your Own Ending books, because they're kids' books, they are a bit morally prescriptive. So you'll find that generally if you die, it's because you've made a selfish choice. You've attempted to save yourself instead of someone else, whereas... The, uh, the options for, that are a bit more courageous and honest and look to be the risky ones are actually the ones that tend to lead to your survival in those particular books. But I'm really proud of them uh, because I'm always looking for new, um, new frameworks to write stories around. I'm interested in, in sort of the underlying templates that make stories work. And in the case of these books, so I knew that I wanted to write a book with 30 different endings. And I also knew that I didn't just want it to be a story where the reader controls the action. I wanted it to be a good story, no matter what choices the reader made. So that, and I also knew that a good ending tends to refer back to the beginning. So it feels like a closed loop. So the story is actually finished. So that meant that the hardest part of writing each of those books was writing an opening chapter, which planted the seeds of 30 different endings and would still have it feel, um, and still have every story feel finished. Uh, but also because for some reason I like making things very difficult for myself, only in terms of writing. In every other area of my life, I'm, I'm very lazy. <laughs> but I, I didn't just want it to be a choose-your-own-ending book in the same vein as the choose-your-own-adventure books of the 80s. I wanted to add extra little things like in Countdown to Danger, Deadly Heist, for example, there's uh, a scene where it says, if you know the code for the safe, 
turn to that page if you don't go to page 69. And um, so if you've been paying attention, you do know the code because it's written on a post-it note in a previous chapter or something. But I really didn't have much passion for that book until I came up with that particular idea that it would be possible to have the page number itself be a code. Um, so often my, my books, so it's not as though I write the book and then put Easter eggs in. Usually the Easter eggs are where I find the passion for the story and the story kind of grows around them. You've played with genres significantly throughout your career as well because you started and you were known for being a sci-fi writer. You started with your first book, which was The Lab, which mm -hmm. seemed to be informed by what you'd been growing up watching and enjoying and reading. I think you, you started reading things like the Doctor Who uh, novelizations, didn't you? The yeah. novelization of the Doctor Who TV show. Yeah, that, that's right. My, um, I still have this enormous stack of Doctor Who novelizations. I remember that my favourites were the ones written by Terence Dix. Yep. Although I, um, I, I couldn't tell you which any of the ones uh, my my favourites were, but I just remember going, "Ooh, another Terence Dix one." I, fa I found these in secondhand bookstores, you know. Uh, but I never watched the show. I only read the books. It was only later that I, I watched the show and had that moment of, wow, the special effects were so much better in my head. That's clearly a man in a rubber suit. <laughs> um, maybe this is what turned me into a novelist rather than a filmmaker. The, the idea that, that books were not the inferior medium as, cause I do think that some writers, probably not very many successful ones, but, but some people have this idea that they want to get into novel writing as a stepping stone to get into movies or screenwriting or, or whatever. Whereas I've actually always felt that the novels are, uh, that, that reading novels is more fun. Um, and not for everyone necessarily, but, but certainly for me, because you have that flexibility of the better your imagination is, the better the book you are reading is because the reader is the co-author in a sense. They're building the story in their own mind. Um, whereas if a hundred kids go and see Harry Potter, then they've each had an identical experience having watched an identical movie. That, that flexibility is gone. You've also said, I've seen on record, saying that you hated being treated like a child. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I don't think that's unique to me, I think most children hate being either told they're being childish or told that they can't watch or enjoy such and such a thing because it's an adult or, or something is beyond their reach. But I do remember that I don't know what it is about about me, but I remember it. It felt like when I was growing up, no matter what I was doing, there was always someone standing over my shoulder trying to quote unquote help and, and telling me that I should do things their way. And I, um, so sometimes that was a, a parent, sometimes it was a teacher, sometimes it was a friend, sometimes it was a, a you know, a, a scout leader or someone at, at tennis. But I, um, and in every case, they were giving me good advice, but robbing me of the opportunity to discover something, um, for myself. And so writing felt like the only thing I could do without someone else watching over my shoulder and telling me I was doing it wrong. So the first book, uh, was, was an experiment for me, which meant I made a lot of embarrassing mistakes because I wasn't working to someone else's blueprint, but at least the results were purely me and what I wanted to do. And it meant that eventually when I submitted it to a publisher, it stood out um, because I wasn't following anyone else's blueprint. So there were all sorts of things wrong with it, but at least it was unique. Now, now I am going to pull you up on this because I understand that's not actually your first book. Your first book was The Afterlife Guard. When you're oh, you have done your research. 
<laughs> Goodness me. Um, yeah, okay, the afterlife guard. Tell I, me about the afterlife guard. The afterlife guard was a... Uh, I would have been in primary school when, when I wrote this story. I thought of it as a trilogy. Good in, in fact, I wrote the trilogy, but I suspect each book in the trilogy was maybe five pages long or something like that, um, possibly more. My recollection of the plot is that uh, in, as far as the world building goes, when you die, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there's just a great big building that everyone goes to and you're put in a cell and you're left there for all of eternity. It's like a prison. Um, and there were characters who were the afterlife guards whose job it was to stop people from escaping from this particular prison. And there was one uh, person who, a, a murderer in fact, who did manage to escape from the from his cell somehow, I forget exactly how, and managed to find a portal back to the real world and came back here as a ghost. And it was the afterlife guard's job to come here to Earth and hunt him down, which was made difficult by the fact that if you're a ghost and you escape back to Earth, then you can shapeshift and become a giant monster and, and whatever it was you want to do. And it's further complicated by the fact that the afterlife guard actually starts to have some sympathy for the person that he's hunting who's only trying to go back and see his family. And then there was a, that was book one. In, in book, in book two, the, the additional complication was that the afterlife guard finally captures him and sends him back to the afterlife only to discover that because he was shapeshifted at the time, now there's a giant monster in the afterlife destroying everything there. So Jack, the specificity of this makes me believe that this isn't an idea which has left you at all. I, um, it left me for a very, very long time. And then, um, I was writing either the cutout or the failsafe, I forget which, you appear to have done some excellent research, so you might be able to tell me. But I was writing a, a novel set in a fictitious country that shares a border with Russia, and there was a character who was a former spy trying to pass for a local and trying to read a classic novel that uh, that had um, that everyone would expect her to know in that environment. So I went, okay, I need to very quickly come up with some kind of plot that for a, what could potentially be a classic novel in this made-up country that I've created. Um, oh, what was that thing I made when I was a kid? The Afterlife Guard. That seems like appropriately mystical and strange. So I wrote, I rewrote a paragraph of The Afterlife Guard just to have her read it as part of this story world. And that is what has made it all so fresh in my memory again, just the fact that I had to take that little trip down memory lane. Isn't it fantastic how good ideas, or at least ideas, just stay with you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Although um, I must say, that's an enormous amount of story for five pages, Jack. Well, uh, have you ever met a primary school kid? <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't have trouble coming up with ideas. What they, what they have trouble with is, um, is fleshing out those ideas with enough uh, scenery detail and, and character and stuff that they become Compelling. But I guess I've always had the storytelling bug. In retrospect, it was obvious that I'd be doing this. I'm also fascinated, of course, that you, you've pitched it to yourself as a trilogy because when you look at the majority of your books, um, you've had a, se a series of series, shall we put it that way. Yeah. You know, you've had the Countdown series, you've had the Danger series, you've got the Scream series. You've got a new series, I think, with Constantino the Magician coming out shortly. <laughs> yep. Oh, the first two books of that are out, actually, yep. and there's two more coming. So, yeah. Um, I think, so uh, I, I used to always think in terms of sequels and, 
So my first book, I wrote a sequel and then another sequel and, and then an, another sequel. But, um, but that came back to, to haunt me really because with every book you write, unless the book is an absolute smash hit, then you're limiting your readership pool to people who read the, the previous iteration of the series. So. Um, I felt like I still had a lot of fans because I was getting a lot of fan mail, but that turned out to be coming from a pretty small group of fairly dedicated readers. And so that meant that by the time I got to the fourth book in this series, it was essentially a book that I shouldn't have written because the market for it just wasn't there. And I ended up um, having been... Uh, I, I came sort of crashing down to earth because I'd, I'd had this book come out when I was a teenager and everyone had been telling me that I was so special and I was this wonderkind, um, you know, brilliant young writer. And by the way, I always, I, I can't say I always hated being praised for being a, a young writer because sometimes I loved it, but it does seem like a horrible thing to do to someone to praise them for something that they didn't choose and can't change. It's, it's exactly against that growth mindset thing that educators are talking about now. And uh, I remember that I was trotted out to a lot of schools and festivals and things, not because I was a good speaker, I most certainly was not, I, but I, it was almost like just sort of here is uh, a young man who has written a book, so all you young men in the audience, you too could write a book, and that was my whole job. To but just Jack, sort of... wasn't it even more than that? You you were named ACT Australian of the Year. <laughs> ACT Young Australian of the Year, yeah, in 2009. I try to work that into as many conversations as possible, but it's hard <laughs> to do subtly. <laughs> but did that place any of that extra pressure that you were saying of that, that difficulty of having, because I mean, you would have had a couple of novels out by then. Yeah. But did it put extra pressure on you to try and make sure the next one was a huge success or at least a success? I guess so. I, I still remember the, the fear. I, I had a lot more confidence as a, as a teenager. I've, I've said before, I think that I was probably a little bit insufferable as, as, as a kid and as a teenager. I remember telling people as a 14 year old, uh, or 13 year old probably that I was going to be a millionaire novelist by the time I was 15. I honestly believed that this would be the case. I thought it'd take me about two weeks to write the book, two weeks to find a publisher and then give or take a year for the sales to grow. And then, well, then I would be a millionaire I, novelist. I hope you've gone and taken a good hard look at yourself in the mirror and realized what a <laughs> failure you are. Absolutely. Well, I, I had plenty of time when the book did come out and it was a big success. And then it was the next few books that, that kind of flopped that meant, um, so not only were, were the books not selling that well, but also Borders and Angus and Robertson collapsed and suddenly there were no distribution chains. And so I submitted a draft of Hangman to the publisher. This is as, as early as kind of 2012 and uh, they didn't want anything to do with it. So I wrote a different book and they didn't like that either. So I wrote a different book and they didn't like that either. And then I, um, I realized I was in trouble and I had to get a proper job. I worked in a call center for a little while and um, and then I sold televisions for minimum wage and various other other jobs that might suit other people. But but I kept just thinking, this is not me. This is not who I am. I, I need to be, um, I have one skill and no one's letting me do it. <laughs> did, did that drive you to work harder or faster? Yes. It, it led to, um, so in 2012, 
I did NaNoWriMo, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, National Novel Writing Month. Um, I was just so desperate to write something new that someone might be interested in that I thought, okay, in addition to working um, nine to five at a call center that's quite a long way from my house, um, I will, uh, I'll write 1,667 words a day for 30 days, and then at the end of it, I'll have a novel. And I did that, and that's what became the cutout. But it took me quite a long time to get the cutout published um, and I ended up in a position where I self-published a novel because I wasn't having any luck getting anything else published. That was called Ink, Ink, and I'm very proud of it, even though it wasn't a success. Um, and then I, I ended up, that got the attention of some other publishers who I hadn't talked to before, and they wanted to, um, one publisher wanted me to write a new series for them, another publisher wanted me to write a, a new series for them, and a third publisher was interested in the cutout. Uh, so that meant that kind of that reinvigorated my career a little bit and that was very very exciting and but since then firstly I don't write sequels to books that I don't know the sales stats for yet um, I learned my lesson about that you've got to abandon a series before the readers do not after and also I never let myself forget how lucky I was anymore like I had a huge break when I was 19 and now I it didn't seem as miraculous at the time as it should have it felt like I deserved it I did not deserve it I was so lucky and so now I'm always just aware I'm, I'm always teetering on the verge of burnout because I'm aware that there are so many other writers out there who work at least as hard as I do and who um who are at least as talented as I am if not more and they're just banging their heads against a wall never making any money out of it so I'm just I live in a state of perpetual desperation <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems to be the fear and, and confronting your fear has been a key driver for your huge success that you have had and also for the success of Hangman. I mean, Jack, it's a great read. It is, <laughs> it is a real rip-roaring fun read and um, I look forward to the sequel, which I know you're writing at the moment. Um, yes. And so when's that due out? Um, so in America, I think it will be June 2019. I'm still trying to get an Australian contract for it. Um, I, I submitted an, an outline to my agent who thinks it's a bit over the top, <laughs> but uh, that's what everyone said about book one. It's <laughs> looking good, in other words. It, it's it's on, looking good. It's on definitely. brand. Definitely on <laughs> yeah, brand. Yeah, that's right. Working title is just one bite. You oh. heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, thank you very much for coming in, Ben. It has been an absolute delight to talk to you today. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And you can find Jack's books online and in stores right now. Hangman was also recently picked up by producers in the US and may be coming to our TV screens sometime soon. Meanwhile, you can follow Jack at Jack Heath Writer on Twitter, and you can also follow us at ConversationsWW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.